For the uh, last five months, I've been saying, take your Bible and turn to Isaiah. So let's do something different. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We're starting a new study today, the basics of relationship. The basics of relationship. Uh, Peter is an interesting case study, a, a character study in the Bible. Peter was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. Peter is one that lived with Jesus for three years, basically. Day and night saw this, this one who claimed to be the Son of God. And I think it's a very appropriate study going from the book of Isaiah to 1 Peter because we see so much what we saw in the Old Testament looking forward to the New Testament. Now we're going to look back and see some of the things fleshed out that Isaiah was talking about. So go to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to talk today about choosing a foundation. There are a lot of bad foundations out there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of shows on HGTV, Homes on Homes, and uh, this guy named Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S, comes around and he checks out Homes and he finds out these bad foundations. But it's not just him. Uh, I read a couple of uh, news articles, November 15th, 2010, just last November, Little Falls, New York, a 37 wind turbine project. So there's 37 wind turbines in Little Falls, New York. It was shut down uh, overnight. An inspector came to inspect the foundation. Now, let me describe these, these turbines so you understand. The turbine was 322 feet from the base of the pedestal to the hub, not to the tip. 476 feet from the base of the pedestal to the top of the prop that went around the wind turbine. That's a pretty big wind turbine, right? Anybody have a fan at home? No, you don't have fans that big, I promise you. That's huge. That is, that's mammoth. We can't even imagine uh, the span of the thing was about 300 feet, if you can imagine that. They found out there was a slight problem. None of the concrete met the stress test. None of the concrete was properly poured. In digging up one of the foundations, they found there was no rebar and no footings. It was laid flat on the ground. They were building these pedestals. And they said residents began to complain when they were seeing their rock as much as five, off five degrees either way. Now, five degrees when you're in the ground doesn't seem like much. But you get 322 feet or get 476 feet up there, that's huge. And they said all the local people said, we're not driving by one of those things until you take them down because one of those blades is going to come spinning down the highway one day. Or get this one. December 13th, Anaheim Hills, Anaheim Hills, California. A house is for sale, 1,336 square feet. It's on Shorecliff Country Club. Don't know where that is, but it's Shorecliff Fair, Fairway Number 5. They said the house was being sold as is. Slight crack in the foundation. But they were willing to reduce it from 685000 by the way, these houses sold three years ago for $1.2 million. They were willing to reduce it from 685000 to 469, and you take care of any slight problems there might be. They had beautiful photos of the front, beautiful photos of the bedrooms and the inside, no photos out the back. Finally, somebody went and took a picture of the back. The deck was in the middle of fairway number five because the whole deck had slid down the hill. It had taken eight feet of fill dirt with it, and they found that the house, again, had no footings. The foundation was not just cracked. There was a three-and-a-half-inch uh, gap from the, from the sides of the foundation to the middle of the foundation. It had sagged three-and-a-half inches in the middle of the, of the floor of this foundation. They said, actually, someone should pay them to take the house. It's ruined. It's, it's worthless. 
there's some bad foundations out there. And Jesus saw the bad foundations that, that existed in many people's lives. And Jesus was always having the DTR conversation, uh, define the relationship. I, I know that some young people get to the point where they have the DTR, uh, they have a talk. They start dating for a while, and then all of a sudden they have this DTR, define the relationship. Where is this relationship going? And Jesus had this relationship over and over with the disciples. Who do people say that I am? What are you placing your trust in? What's the foundation of this relationship? The best builder provides the best possible foundation. Psalm 127.1 reminds us, this is what it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. And the Lord calls us to examine the foundation of our faith, to examine the relationship that we have with Him. And as we learn to have that relation vertically with the Lord, we'll also learn to have better relationships with one another. God said when when someone came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? 613 commands. And we know the Ten Commandments, but there were 613 different commands given in the Old Testament. And he said, which is the greatest? And Jesus went completely off the map from where they thought. And he said, the first and greatest is to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll look at that later. But the second is to love one another. And the Lord says, I want you to build relationships with me first and with others secondly. Jesus told us to follow him. Christ wants us to make disciples. As he's leaving his disciples, what does he say? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So what foundation is necessary? If we're supposed to do the job that God has given us, are we like some wind turbine that's, that's shaking in the wind, that's rattling every time the fan goes around? Or do we have a solid foundation on what God has given us our task to do? And we're going to look at 1 Peter. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at this and break it down. It's five chapters. We're going to look at it for six weeks. And we're going to look at the relationships that God has given us. And we're starting with a foundation. What's essential for a healthy relationship? If you have your notes, you can fill in the blank. What is essential for a healthy relationship? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And I've said verses 3 through 9, but I need to go back and just get the introduction and catch it very quickly. In 1 Peter 1, 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was one who spent time with the Lord. There were the original 12 apostles that Jesus called uh, the, the, the 12, what we call the original disciples. And I've told you before, but you can remember them. It's 52 Mab Street. There's five J's, there's two Peters, then M-A-B-S-T. So it's James, James, John, Jude, Judas, Peter, Philip, Matthew, Andrew, Bartholomew, Simon, and Thomas. That's the 12 disciples. Those were the ones that Jesus called, and Peter was one of those. If you didn't get that, just hold your breath and you can get back to it, okay? Check it out on the website. It's, it's an address, 52 M-A-B-S-T, Mab Street, and you can get the 12 disciples from that. To God's elect, interesting word, strangers in the world, scattered, or the dispersia, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. We were just looking at the atonement. We were looking at the sprinkling of the blood just last week. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter is writing to this group that's been scattered all over the known world at that time. And he says, listen, I have a message for you, a message you need to hear. It's a foundational message. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving, present tense, you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is essential for a healthy relationship? As we start looking at that and thinking about our relationship with the Lord, what is absolutely key? Number one, build your relationship on trust. Build your relationship on trust. Think with me about Peter. He's writing to these who are dispersed, and he's talking about God's sovereignty. He's talking about God's power, who through the foreknowledge, they're chosen. They're the, they're the elected. That's, that's a gr- Greek word there, um, eklektos. And it's the same word that we, get, that we take from election or chosen. We have been chosen by God. Did you notice that? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I love the fact that he says, I know that I've been chosen and I know that I have a a firm foundation. Who was Peter? He was this tough guy. He was this rugged guy. He was this fisherman. He loved the sea. Peter was this guy who was strong-willed. He could be expressive at times. He he did nothing half-heartedly. If Peter went after it, he went after it wholeheartedly. And I love that about Peter. He was loyal. Who's the one in the garden who cut off the servant's ear? It was Peter. When Jesus says, who do, people say that I are, who do people say that I am? Peter's the one who answered, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the sent one. You're the one that Isaiah prophesied. Peter was blindly courageous. Jesus is walking on the water. There are 12 in the, in the, at least 12 in the boat that night that Jesus comes walking on the water. And it says they're terrified. They think he's a ghost. And what does Peter do? He jumps out. Hey, Lord, if it's you, can I walk too? I love that about Peter. Blindly courageous. Of course, he gets a couple steps. Well, we'll get there. Sometimes he's overconfident in his promises. Sometimes he overstates. Sometimes he lets his mouth write a check his body can't cash. Right? He does. He says things that he really can't back up. And when the Lord says to him, Peter, I'm going to go to the cross, he says, Lord, that's not going to happen. And the Lord says, no, it's going to happen. And he says, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, I would never deny you. And 24 hours later, less than 24 hours later, he realizes that he's overstated again. His, he's overconfident in what he can do. But Peter's life is based on one thing. He says, we have based our life. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He finally learned it. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living, sure hope, solid hope. This isn't something that you're hoping against hope. I've had people come to me and say, oh, I hope the Dallas Mavericks win the NBA championship. I want anybody other than the other team to win. Sorry. A little arrogance going on in Miami right now. But, but people are hoping against hope. Oh, if my team wins. Oh, if, you know, I'm hoping my hair will grow back. It isn't going to happen. 
That's not a sure hope. The sure hope is what God has already done, and he says it's kept for you. It's an inheritance that wouldn't perish, spoil, or fade. On Good Morning America this week, uh, there was a doctor, Dr. Richard Besser, and he was checking for spoiled food in people's cabinets and spoiled food in people's refrigerators because we have food that will spoil or perish or fade away. What was scary is he was finding these things in people's cabinets. One of them he found was from 2003, another one from 2001. Wow, I'm, I'm wanting to go eat at those people's houses, right? What's really scary is I won't tell you what spices we threw away when we started looking at the dates on ours. Kathy said, didn't we just buy that a couple of months ago? And I said, well, that store's been closed for a couple of years. It's, it's so easy for something to perish and to spoil. And, and Peter says, no, I can trust this. And Peter says that this faith, this trust is more valuable even than gold. We don't really believe that, but it's true. Is trust, is faith more important than gold? It's more important to you and your family. And you say, well, I don't know that that's true. It really is if you think about it. If parents begin to lose faith, they begin to not trust their kids. Not that any of our teenagers would ever be like this, but if a teenager lies to you about where they've gone, if they, if they don't tell you the truth about something and that trust is broken... And all of a sudden, you don't know if you can trust them. Or maybe within a marriage, the, the, the spouses don't trust each other anymore. Or maybe you've lost trust in your parent. Or maybe you've lost trust in someone else. That trust is valuable to us. He says it's even more valuable than gold. Why would Peter say that? Because I already told you that there was this time when Peter said, Lord, I, I'll never deny you. And Jesus is taken, and he's taken away. And at one point, he's brought into Caiaphas' home, and, and it says that in the courtyard there, Peter comes to find out what's happening to Jesus, and, and a maid, and then others begin to question him. And he says, I don't know him. I've, I'm not from Galilee. I've never heard the man. And he uses an oath. He, he swears on his life, or he swears maybe on the Bible. Somehow he uses an oath. I don't know that he used blasphemous language, but he, he did something that he knew he should not do, and he swore on an oath that he didn't know the man. Look what it says in Luke, Luke twenty two sixty one. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Just a few weeks ago, we were standing in, in Jerusalem, right outside Jerusalem where this happened. And you can see easily how it happened, where there's this outcropping where Jesus would have been brought back in to, to be put in a holding pit until he was crucified. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter knew at that point that he had broken the trust that the Lord had. And he went outside and this tough, rugged man, this, this fisherman who, who put up with storms and, and was willing to take a sword and cut a, a servant's ear off, this man went out and wept bitterly. Peter understood how important it was to have that trust. And he knew he'd blown it. Folks, let me tell you something. God is trustworthy. The bigger issue is often we are not. God is worthy of our trust, but so many times we make promises to God that we do not keep. We fail. 
What I think is interesting is that Peter did not lose his salvation. The Lord never comes back to Peter and says what he said to Nicodemus. Peter, you, you must be born again. He didn't say, Peter, you have to trust me again. He didn't say, Peter, you need to go back and get baptized. He didn't say, Peter, you need to join a church. What did he do? He goes back later and he says, Peter, let's reestablish that relationship. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, 8 says, listen, if you say that you never sin, you're a liar. 1 John 1, 10 says, let me say it again. If you say, even as a believer, even as a child of God, that you never sin, you don't understand. We're all going to blow it. The question is, how many times a day? The question is, how early in the day? It's not a matter of if, it's just when. And the Lord says, when you do that, you can come back because your relationship is built on me, not on you. God's faithfulness. In fact, Peter goes on to say, don't you understand your faith is going to be tested? Look at verse, uh, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to, to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise. Trials, God gives us trials to test our faith, to prove our faith, to establish our faith, to grow our faith. And I love the little word all kinds there. It's poikolos. It's a Greek word, poikolos. And we get that polka dot from that. Uh, it's, it's all kinds of dots. It's all kinds of colors, shapes, and sizes. It's, it's this varied, it's, it's this many-hued kinds of trials. Your trial is different from my trial. Your test is different from my test, but you will have a test. Peter uses the term suffering 15 times. What's interesting, he uses eight different words for suffering. He uses more different words for suffering than any other writer in this one little book in five chapters. Trials reveal that we need help. Trials reveal really how out of our league we really are. Trials really open us up and point us to Christ. They can redefine our faith. I, I love a website. It's called uh, crosswalk.com. And I went to crosswalk.com, and there's a new book out. I don't have this book. I think it's an interesting book. I'll probably buy it. It's, here's the title. When Will My Life Not Suck? I'm just quoting. When Will My Life Not Suck? A, a couple points. Look for what's valuable inside the mess. He says, uh, by the way, he says, it isn't going to happen until you die, Okay. Uh, no, matter what, no matter what you're going through, you may find a b better life, but is it, you're still going to have some problems. Look for what's valuable inside the mess, he says. While it's true that life in this fallen, sinful world is often messy, it's also true that something of value always exists for you to find. God puts it there in spite of your, of your difficult circumstances. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Choose to have faith in God's promises that he loves you and will do what's best for you. Understand that any difficult circumstances God allows into your life can accomplish good purposes for you if you trust God to use them to transform you into a stronger person. Keep in mind that while you may be focused on external change, trying to change your circumstances, God is not nearly concerned, as concerned with your, your circumstances as the internal change working to change your soul. The basics of relationship all come back to basing that relationship on trust. And here's the second thing you base it on, according to what Peter said, build your relationship on love. On love that's more than a feeling. On love that's more than just this emotion that comes, that just comes roaring down sometime. 
Base your relationship on an act of the will, a choice, a commitment. There is a love that God commands us to have. You cannot command an emotion, but you can command a choice. And the Lord says, make a choice. And Peter talks about the advantage that he had. Did you notice that he had an advantage over us? What's the advantage that Peter had that we don't have? Peter had seen Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus. There was a time, a story, when Peter goes and, and his mother-in-law is, is to the point of death, which, by the way, really throws some churches into a quandary because they say Peter never got married. If he had a mother-in-law, I don't know how you get a mother-in-law unless you're married. So that throws a little bit into question some of the church's doctrine. But some churches say that. But Peter had this mother-in-law. She's at the point of death. Jesus comes, and he heals his mother-in-law. I'm trying to think if that's a good thing. Yeah, for most of us, that would be a good thing, you know. I I didn't know for sure which way Peter prayed on that particular day. I don't know his mother-in-law. But anyway, you have to do mother-in-law jokes if you get them. Come on, you got to do them. But Peter prayed. The Lord came, and the mother-in-law is raised back up, and Jesus is is there, and Peter gets to see that. Jesus is, is, is walking on the sea. Peter comes out of the boat, walks across, I don't know how many steps, one, two. He looks at the waves. He looks at the, at the wind, and he gets his eyes off Jesus, and he says, Lord, help me. I don't know how Jesus said it. I don't know what he did, but it says that Jesus reached his hand down, and grasping his hand, he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you, Peter, this is me. Peter, and I can just see Peter looking up. His face is, rent, is just drenched with the rain and the, and the waves whipping across him. And I, you know he can probably barely see because of all the water. And he looks up and he sees that face. And what did Jesus look like? Peter saw that. Peter was the one looked across that courtyard that day when Jesus had said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, you don't get it. I'll never deny you. And he looks across the courtyard and he sees Jesus' eyes. And Jesus' eyes somehow looked straight through Peter's eyes into his heart, into his soul. And Peter said, oh. Peter says, you've never seen him. But you love him. How can you love someone you've never seen? Gordon Moat uh, is blind. Gordon came and played the piano here. I just loved having Gordon here last fall. Hopefully we'll get him back again. What an incredible pianist. All kinds of different styles of music. Just sits right here and plays. And what I love is, is Gordon's playing along and he claps in the middle and goes right back to the same notes. I can't do that and I can see fine. How does, I mean, I can hardly do that with a guitar. I'm looking down to see where my fingers are. He's blind and he's doing all of this. But he wrote an incredible song about his wife. If they could see you through my eyes. They'd see where the real beauty lies. You see, you don't have to be able to see someone to love them. Gordon has experienced his wife in in other ways that we can't even imagine, and he's experienced a love without being able to see her. And Peter, who had seen the Lord, knew that his Whole relationships built on love. How? Because before Jesus left, do you remember in Mark, in in all the other Gospels, it it says to the ladies who come to the tomb, go and tell the disciples. But in Mark, it, it changes it just slightly. It says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Go back and tell. Be sure Peter knows because I know where Peter is right now. He's devastated by what he's done in denying me. Make sure that Peter understands. And the Lord remembered to make sure that the angel gives the message so that Peter would know. 
And then by the Sea of Galilee, they're all out fishing again. Peter's thought, I've blown it. He's not going to have me on his team. I'm just going to go back and I'm going to make a living. And he remembers the same scenario. They've been out before where there's no fish. And the Lord said, throw the net on the other side. And they fish all night. And here's this guy on the shore. And he's building a fire. And he's putting fish already on there. By the way, where did Jesus get the fish? He didn't have any nets. Oh, yeah, he made them. That's probably not a big deal, was it? And Jesus is there, and he's got the fish, and he's already got breakfast going. And he sees the guys, and he says, hey, guys, throw the net out on the other side. And somewhere down deep inside Peter, he says, I think it's the Lord. I think it's him. And he can't even wait. When the boat gets close, he jumps over the side, and he swims to shore, and he comes, and he falls before the Lord. And what does the Lord say to him? Look at what it says in John John 21, 15 says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you believe? Is that what he said? Do you have faith? Do you have a strong faith? Come on, Peter, can you buck up your faith? No, he says, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? We could go on and on about who the these are. It doesn't matter. It's anything else. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And the Lord says, I still have a job for you. Feed my sheep. Three times it's repeated because Jesus knows that Peter has denied three times. He needs to hear him say one more time, three more times that he loves him. A relationship built on love. How much does God love us? If you look from the very beginning, it says, according to his foreknowledge, God knows everything that's going to happen to you, everything that's happened up to now, and everything that's going to happen. God has perfect knowledge of your life. God knows every time you've blown it and every time you're going to blow it. He's known every word that's come out of your mouth and every word that's going to come out of your mouth, and he loves you anyway. He has our inheritance ready. John 14, as he's leaving the disciples, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You remember, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come and get you and receive you to myself. I think that harkens back to Deuteronomy 131. As the the children of Israel are coming into the promised land, this is what's said. The Lord your God carried you as a father carries a son all the way until you reach this place. The Lord said, I love you. I've prepared a place for you. Uh, Kathy and I, if we want to go see our grandkids, there's only one way to do it, really, basically, and that's get on a plane. We have kids now in Austin and Nashville and, and over on the Florida coast, the Space Coast, and so we have to get on a plane. And every now and then, we've gotten on a plane, and it's a really uncomfortable feeling because you have your plane ticket, and you get on, and they say, yes, Mr. Knight, glad to have you, Mr. Knight. Come on in, Mr. Knight, and you go down to your seat, and someone's sitting in it. Don't you love that? They really get upset when I sit in their lap. For some reason, they don't like me sitting. No, I don't really do that. But there's usually this question that comes up, okay, who's wrong? Who's in the wrong seat? And inevitably, it's that. Although there was one time when I was coming back without Kathy because one of the kids had had a, a child and she was going to stay a week later, and we canceled her ticket but not my ticket, and I went to sit down in the seat, and they said, uh, oh, no, this tickles, ticket has been canceled. And I said, no. This ticket's good. They've already approved it. My luggage has already been checked. I'm on this plane. They said, well, we had word. No, I said, no, my wife's ticket has been changed, but mine has not. Well, let me check. Oh, you're right. Here's the problem. 
we put two people in the same seat. I said, that other person's really unlucky. And they said, well, sir, we'll give you so many X dollars to go on the next flight. And I said, offer them that same thing and see what happens. They bought their ticket today. I bought mine months ago. Never have a worry about that with the Lord, by the way. It says, your name's already on the door. I've already got it all laid out for you. It's, it's according to the taste that I know that you will love because I love you. What's essential for a healthy relationship? Trust and love. What's essential for a growing relationship? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 21. How about a, a growing relationship? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy. Wait a second. Who's that? That's God. Just as God is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's from Leviticus. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or bought back from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation or before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. How can your your relationship grow? How can you have a growing relationship? Number one, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. There's a lot of different ways to talk about being a disciple. Patrick Morley, a, a, a man who has written a lot about men's ministry, says a disciple is one who's called to walk with Christ, is equipped to live like Christ, and sent to work for Christ. He takes that from 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. I've been saying for six and a half years here that a growing relationship means that we trust Christ, we're trained by Christ, and we actively serve Christ. You have to have that faith, you have to be trained, and you have to serve. So do you have that kind of personal relationship with Christ? Have you ever trusted Him as your Savior? That's the first thing to get out of the way. To know for sure that you're part of the family. That's where discipleship begins. But there's something more because after that, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Have you ever had someone say to you something like, I haven't made up my mind yet? we've We've never heard that, right? I haven't made up my mind. If I could just wrap my mind around that. Or how about this? I, I saw a, a little kid that was running around here. No names will be mentioned. But this little, this little child was running around here. And the mother just looked up at me and says, once he gets his mind set. Once he gets his mind set. And I thought, I wonder if the Lord ever wants us to get our minds set on doing the things he's called us to do. To prepare our minds for action. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take into captive most everything we think. Is that what it says? No, it says, And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
That's what we have to do. How do we do that? 2 Corinthians 11 is a warning. It says, don't fall for false teaching. How do you prepare your mind for action? Let me give you a really simple way to do that. You see this book? It's called the Bible. You know what you do? You read it and read it and read it. I read a lot of books about the Bible, but I read the Bible. I've read through the New Testament or the Old Testament every year now for probably a dozen years and before that many other times that I can't even keep count of. Why do I do that? You're a pastor. You've had all the training. Because I still need to learn what's in this book to prepare my mind for action. Number two, begin training. Begin training. Not only prepare your mind for action, but then actually do something. He says, prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Literally have discipline or be disciplined. That sounds anti-Christian. It sounds like something we, we, you know, something else that we should not be doing. I mean, aren't we depending on Christ? Yes, absolutely. But Christ is also going to build within us some discipline. And we have to get busy. Nike says what? What's Nike's slogan? Just do it. That's what we need as Christians to get busy. We get our mind prepared. And there's too many Christians. I know probably a third of Christians who know the Bible inside and out. They just never live it. They know the Bible inside and out. They just don't care because it doesn't really impact their life on a day-to-day basis. Just do it. It says that means that we leave the empty way of life. When we get to 1 Peter 4, he's going to describe that in detail, and it's graphic and it's gross. Talking about debauchery and, and sexual sin. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about discipline. I think John Ortberg gives the best uh, description of discipline or the, the best definition. Any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot do by direct effort. Any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot do by direct effort. And you say, that doesn't make any sense at all. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you have ever ridden a bike? Raise your hand. If you've ever in your life ridden a bike, raise your hand. Come on. Some of you have never ridden a bike. Really? You've never been on a bicycle. Okay. Never ridden, some, of, some of you have ridden a bike. How many of you want to go ride 100 miles on a bike right now? If we, ha- we have the bikes outside. Michael will do that. Praise God. I love that. I'm not even going to put my hand up. Can you, well, you say, well, I can ride a bike. Can you ride 100 miles? How about if we rode up to, um, uh, rode up to Shingletown and back? I mean, that, that would be good, right? A little up the hill, right? That'd be kind of tough. Last year in May, I, that's what I did. Last year in May, there were several of us that we did. Some of us did 60, some of us did 70, some of us did 100 miles. And we basically rode up to Shingletown and over and down uh, Oak Run. We, we rode that, basically. Wow. How did you do that? Well, I didn't just decide one day to do it. What, and your wife, my wife will tell you, I spent hours and hours studying and learning and, and reading and then training and getting on a bicycle day after day after day so that I f- could first go 10 miles and then 20 and then 30, then 50, then 100 miles. Any, anything I can do by direct effort to enable me to do something that at that particular time I could not do by direct effort. And I got news for you. Because I'm out of training, I would not get on a bike and try to do 100 miles today. Spiritually, spiritual discipline is any activity that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. To do things that you could not do otherwise. 
That's discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. If we are going to have a healthy, growing relationship, we have to prepare our minds, then we have to get busy doing it and practicing it. If you wanted to know more about this, I, I did a series called How to Build Christian Character on 2 Peter verses. Uh, uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. You can ask the tape ministry, and they will, uh, they'll give you some CDs, and uh, we'll get you that. How to build Christian character. And I just threw that on them, and they have no idea where that is, and some of them are, are scribbling that down. How to build Christian character. Here's the third one. Commit completely. Set your hope fully on the grace, is what he says. Set your hope fully, verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's not something you dabble in. It's all or nothing. It's not something you do partway. It's not something you do halfway. I, again, I ran across an article. It's by Mark Buchanan, one of my favorite pastors. Uh, and he calls it, Who Will Drive Your Life? Listen to this. It's a scary day when parents place their newborn child in a car seat for that child's first day out in the world. We've had a new baby just born a couple of weeks ago. I see many of you come in with the big car seats. I mean, the kid's heavy enough, but the car seat weighs a ton right? It's a scary day. You put that child in the car seat. As they head down the road, the fragility of life becomes very real. Life is very fragile. Do you know when the next scary day with your child and the car is? The day you give them the keys. Yeah, you got that one, didn't you? This is what Mark says. We live in a neighborhood with circuitous streets. Whenever, wherever I am going, even if it's three blocks away, whatever route I take, someone in my family will critique it. Dad, why are you going this way? This is the long way. You should have gone the other way. I have to tell them, this is my car, these keys are my keys, and this is the way I want to go. This is what he says. I live in a family where everyone wants to drive. Many people find Jesus pretty handy to have in the passenger seat when they require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem. I need your help. Something's going on at work. Jesus, I'd like, to, like it to be different. Jesus, I'm feeling an an anxious, and I want uh, you to give me peace of mind. Jesus, I'm feeling sad. Can you give me some hope? Jesus, I'm facing death, and I want to make sure I'm going to heaven. It's fine to have him there along for the ride. But these people are not so sure they want Jesus driving because if Jesus is behind the wheel, they're not in control anymore. If he's driving, they're not in charge of their wallet anymore. They can no longer simply say, I'll give some, sometimes when I feel generous, but I reserve the right to give what I want and to keep what I want. Now it's Jesus' money. When I let Jesus drive, I'm no longer in charge of my ego. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. Now it's his life. I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip. I don't get to flatter, cajole, condemn, lie, curse, rage, cheat, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate, or prevaricate anymore. Now it's not my mouth. It's his mouth. You know the problem with all of that? It's very hard to surrender. It's very hard to say, Lord, I want you to take control. I want you to drive my life. And the Lord says, I have the highest standard. I want you to be holy as I am holy. And the only way to do that is to allow God to drive your life. To be holy, to be set apart, like you're set apart to marriage. Romans 12.1 talks about that. 
says, therefore, I urge you, literally, I beg you. This is one of the few times that Paul uses that word. I urge you. It's the strongest word. I beg you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I've heard so many sermons that talk about a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, there was no living sacrifice. Why? They always slit the throat first. Why? Because if you put a living sacrifice on the altar, it wanted to wiggle off. And he says, I want you to be living sacrifices, holy that's set apart. The same word, be holy as I am holy. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What area in your life is the hardest to surrender? Surrender should not be the, oh man, I have to surrender. Oh man, I can't believe this. It should be glad, voluntary. It should be happy. It's an agreement that you make with God that there is a God and it is not you. Oh, did you get that? There is a God and it's not you. There is a God and it is not you. And when you surrender, you have to acknowledge that he is in control. It's not being passive. It involves creativity, making choices, taking initiative. Surrender does not make us a doormat. You still use your mind. You still ask questions. You challenge the status quo. It's not a crutch for weak people who cannot handle life. It's allowing God to lead. It's living in reverence, that reverent fear that Peter talked about. I ran across a story, a true story of of a family who had done this. And what they surrendered is they surrendered their comfort Family's name is Nancy and Ed uh, Huizinga, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Nancy and Ed Huizinga. Two teenage children of their own. They had a good friend that was uh, diagnosed with cancer, a single mom. Her name was Barb Post. Single mom, her husband had already passed away. And Barb Post is diagnosed with cancer. And so Nancy and Ed said, this is what we're going to do. Barb, if something happens to you, we will take your two teenagers and we will raise them with our two teenagers. And when they said this, they never dreamed. They thought it would be years. It was seven weeks from the time that Barb Post was diagnosed with cancer to the day that she died. And they took their two teenagers into their home. Christians, they were going to, uh, in December 1995, they were at the church rehearsing for the annual Christmas Festival of Lights. And Nancy and Ed's home burned to the ground. Everything was lost. All the clothes, everything. All the photos, they couldn't find anything. They didn't know what to do. What's amazing is, when they got to thinking about it, these two teenagers that they had taken from, from and they were going to sell Barb's home and take the money and use it to, for these two teenagers for their college tuition, they realized the home had not sold, and so the whole family, all six of them, moved from Nancy and Ed's home to Barb's old home. And they went back, and a week later, they found one scrap of paper in all of the home. Everything else was burned except one scrap of paper. It was in the middle of a Bible, and the Bible was burned up to that page, and the Bible was burned beyond that page. And it was the one page that was not burned was First Peter chapter 1, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And the pastor that day had made a a comment, and Ed had written it down. Contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything we need for our present happiness. It's the only thing in their home that did not burn. They have it framed today in Barb Post's home. Sixteen years later, the kids have all graduated from college, and they have seen God work 
just miraculously in building relationships with their Lord. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think about what that means. First of all, do you have the relationship I talked about? Have you ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Secondly, would you describe your relationship with Him as healthy and growing? If not, we would love to talk to you. Father, you know every person that's sitting here today. We thank you, Father, for what you've given us in, in this book, 1 Peter 1. Help us, Lord, to learn the things that you want us to learn. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the truth that we find there. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, that you are trustworthy. Thank you, Father, for doing those things that only you can do. So now work in us and through us, Father. If there's someone here today who does not have a personal relationship, Father, may they not leave here until they make sure of that. If there are those whose relationship is stalled and like Peter they've failed and they feel like they've been thrown away, help them to realize that that you, Lord, still want them to come back, that you still love them. May we build a relationship and grow in that relationship with you and with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.